1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
2: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the. Excuse me, right at the beginning of the morning, associate editor at the, at the Washington Post. Well, on the international stage, Russia is front and center, and not in a good way. Uh, big news: Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the annexation of four regions of the Ukraine, and this comes. Amid escalating tensions between Russia and the United States, it's led the United States to tell um, Americans in Moscow to leave the country as uh, Putin is conscripting soldiers. Washington Post Pentagon correspondent Karan Dimergin is here to explain it all, or at least try to. There's so much going on. Karan, welcome back. Karan, sorry, welcome back to uh, First Look.
3: Good to be back with
2: you. Okay, so. The West has already slammed the, the, the sham process that led to the announcement uh, today of the annexation of those four regions. My question is, what's the West and Ukraine going to do about it? What, what's the Pentagon saying or thinking about all this? <laughs>
3: So this is the big question, right? I mean, basically the West has been taking the attitude in the Pentagon of this does not really change anything that on the ground, it's still going to be an effort to support Ukraine's efforts to reclaim its territory, to seize back uh, the land that has been um, taken and claimed now by Russia as part of its national borders. Um, It's it's not clear exactly what will happen. Will this cause an increase in sanctions potentially? There's multiple things that could cause the the West to try to increase sanctions against Russia, but at a base, bare bones level, The West has been trying to take the attitude of this isn't that big of a deal, it doesn't change things on the ground, and it's a sign of Putin's desperation that he's making this move because he's not been having wins on the the, the battlefield, so he's trying to claim a win at a sham box office, as they would put it. Mm
2: -hmm. And and that's interesting that the Pentagon doesn't view this as changing anything. But there were hopes that... At some point, maybe Russia and Ukraine would get to the negotiating table, but uh, and sort of negotiate some kind of end to Russia's war on Ukraine. That just take the annexation today takes negotiations off the table, no?
3: It complicates negotiations. I don't think that they were so very on the table 24 hours ago that this has created a dramatic shift. I mean, Ukraine was not exactly in the mood to negotiate an end to the conflict while they were on the upswing and winning battles and winning back land. To do that, any negotiation that you start with ends up being af- affected by the environment in which it starts. And right now, the Ukrainians feel like they have the upper hand on the battlefield. And yes, Russia doing this does make it very, very difficult for them to negotiate away this territory back to Ukraine. But I don't think Ukraine in the mindset right now where they were thinking they were going to try to get this territory back at the negotiating table anyway. They're in it thinking that they are in a long-term fight to seize it back by force, because in their experience, Russia doesn't stick by its its uh, contracts it agrees to in negotiations. And so their argument has been, we have to take this back militarily.
2: hmm So, Karin, what does it tell us about Russia's war in Ukraine and how it's going? The fact that Putin is doing what he's calling a partial um, mobilization, but really conscripting more soldiers into this war effort.
3: It's, it's a huge mobilization. And you also see that the mobilization is creating this counter-mobilization of Russian men of eligible age leaving the country in droves to go any place that they can get into. So, I mean, this is a very serious thing. It shows that they have a manpower issue, that if they want to keep the war going, that they need to keep more bodies coming to the fight. How well-equipped, how well-trained these bodies are going to be going in, that is a very open question. And some reports from the field suggest that they are not very good. They are not very well-trained or equipped in, in terms of being thrown into the battle at this juncture. That's significant, especially given that we're heading into winter, where it gets cold, where people need more fuel, more warm things, more food to be able to survive and actually continue to fight. Um, And so This is creating a moment where we're seeing a crack, basically, in what's happening on the home front in Russia. The Russians have been extremely rallied around their leader, around Putin's decisions on this. The Ukraine war has been popular. The effect of the sanctions has not been all that painful as the West expected. But this is a moment at which you're actually talking about the Russians, in a mass number that is larger and growing, potentially having to feel the pain themselves, um, and that's what's causing many people to try to leave the country, and it's what's causing this this these rumblings of protests that you've seen in the streets of major cities across the country that clearly have been met with crackdowns by the local, by the authorities. But it is a sign that there's dissatisfaction with with how the level to which this this war is escalating. Given that now they're pulling in, I think the the estimate that the Russians put out is they want to bring in 300,000 new, um, mobilized 300,000 reservists or conscripts. And that's a big number. I don't know if they'll get to that number at this point, but that is the number that the Russian people are hearing too. And that's a scary thing for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, t- talk about scary things. Uh, Putin has been reprising his threat of, of nuclear action in Ukraine. How seriously is the Pentagon taking that threat now? given the situation on um, in Russia and on the ground in Ukraine.
3: I mean, if you look at the whole national security apparatus, it's kind of of two minds, one of them being dominant, right? The presumption is, look, he has been using this nuclear threat in various forms in the past. It wasn't that long after the invasion that he put his nuclear arsenal on higher alert and everybody wondered, what does that mean? And in the end, it didn't really mean much, right? However, so so in the first case, this latest threat from Putin that, you know, I'm serious here, I'm not bluffing, is kind of in the same rhetorical vein However, there is always that chance that he's not bluffing, that he is planning on maybe not launching an intercontinental ballistic missile, but on trying to use nuclear weapons in a more localized fashion that would still rip the Band-Aid off of something that has been unthinkable for a very, very long time. And so if there's even a 2% or a 5% chance of that happening, people are still watching for it. But in a a fundamental day-to-day planning sort of uh, mindset, it does not seem to be changing or affecting the strategic calculations, the advice that the United States is giving the Ukrainians, and certainly not the decisions that the Ukrainians are making on the battlefield.
2: And listening to your answer, Karin, it made me wonder, well, what happened, is the Pentagon planning for maybe Putin to do, to maybe ratchet down and instead of use a nuclear weapon, use a chemical or biological weapon?
3: Well, I don't know that that would be ratcheting down necessarily. (laughs) It would would be still ratcheting up what we've seen on the battlefield, and yes, there have been some reports of you know uh, cluster munitions, phosphorus being used in the battlefield, not ubiquitously, but you do get some anecdotal evidence of that, especially coming from Ukrainians when you speak to them directly. Um, Look, it's very possible that that is an option. It's also possible that he that the Russians don't even have to go that route, but that they could start to try to hit more critical infrastructure to make the Ukrainians hurt. Again, the refrain of we're heading into winter is. Potentially a tired one, but it's a true one, which is that you know it doesn't take that many missiles to hit strategic targets that bring heat and electricity to a population to make it much more painful for a country to survive several months of what has been you know a war effort that has depended a lot on morale on both sides um, and to varying degrees of success on both sides, and so. Yes, it's possible that there could be um, chemical or biological weapons used. It's possible that there could be nuclear weapons used. The question is, though, what is the cost of that and what would the backlash be? Like Now, the United States, we heard Jake Sullivan over the weekend, last weekend, say that there would be very serious consequences for the use of a nuclear weapon. I'm sure that also applies for the use of a biochem weapon as well. We don't know what those Consequences that are being threatened are apparently the consequences have been spelled out much more concretely and specifically in the private channels between United States um, national security leaders and their Russian counterparts. But again, there's the open question of how do you do tit for tat for these things? You, you don't mm-hmm. meet a Russian nuclear weapon drop, hopefully, by also dropping more nuclear weapons, because that just can start to get out of hand. Same thing, you don't want to start dropping biological and chemical weapons over the Russian country because they do it in Ukraine. That would be that would metastasize this to proportions that would be I mean, impossible to control and, and might actually backlash in terms of popular reaction. But how much have the sanctions actually hurt Russia? Not as much as we wanted them to. And and, and you can't take an action in one country without having a coalition of agreement um, between the United States and Europe at the very least. And given how many more countries now are actually donating to the Ukraine war effort, probably even broader than just the standard NATO coalition. Karn,
2: we we we've gone over time, but I can't let you go without asking you about um North the Nord Stream pipeline and yeah, this you know, the damage that's happened to it. Um, NATO formally announced that sabotage was the cause. Um, They didn't come out and say that Russia is the culprit, but they are the prime suspect. What's the Pentagon saying about that assessment, if anything, real quickly?
3: I mean, we're still waiting to hear the official pronouncements on that. But look, the the West is speaking with one voice about this. They are suspicious of this. The Pentagon is always very cautious not to go too far ahead of where the rest of the coalition and certainly the rest of the administration is. But it's certainly a sign that things seem to be trending in that direction. And again, that really leads us back to exactly the same realm of question as we were discussing when we were talking about weapons. What is the West's response going to be? It was also signaling that it's going to be a unified and concerted response. The ministers are meeting in just just about two weeks, just under two weeks actually, next month in Brussels. And so they will have a chance to discuss all of this and to come up with a uh, unified strategy right after Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. But we don't know specifically what that's gonna be. And the thing that is really, you have to remember, is that it has to be something that is enough to bring the Russians pain. The Russians Mm -hmm. are not unfamiliar with sanctions at this point. We've been using them for almost a decade against them. And yet we've been using them in ways that are not painful enough to actually push on these doubts that exist in the Russian population to cause massive shifts in what the policy is. And at this point, Mm -hmm. the massive shift obviously the West is looking for is retreat by the Russians, which is extremely unlikely. So the specifics, the devil is in the details. I know that's trite but it's the case for absolutely everything right now um, that is going to come from the West and have to come right. in a unified fashion to get Russia to change strategy.
2: Karin DeMergen, Washington Post Pentagon correspondent, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
3: Thank you, you too.
2: We're gonna keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we'll find Washington Post columnists. E.J. Dion and Josh Rogan. E.J., Josh, welcome back to First Look. Good to be with with you. you. So let's talk about the the, um, news uh, of the day, and that is the official pronouncement by Russian President Vladimir Putin that Russia has annexed those four regions in Ukraine. What does this do um, materially uh, in Russia's war on Ukraine? Uh, Josh, you go first.
1: Sure Jonathan. Well, I think the way that Putin operates is he likes to set himself with up with options. So by annexing the two eastern provinces and the two southern provinces, what he's done is he's created a reality, a political reality on the ground that he believes will pressure the west to pressure Ukraine to sue for peace. That's one option. Also what he's done is he's created a situation where he can claim a pretext to say that if the Ukrainians continue to attack those regions, which are currently occupied, that they're attacking Russia proper. And that would give him a flimsy pretext to be sure to escalate the war even further. So he's given himself an escalation option and a de-escalation option. And you know we don't know which one he really prefers, but the bottom line is that it doesn't matter because uh, it doesn't change the calculation for the Ukrainians who are winning on the ground. And as Karun just pointed out, there's no point negotiating or backing down when you're winning and winter is coming, but it's not here yet. So there's going to be a few more months of fighting and Putin's gambit, you know, is uh, meant for also to to address the, the his domestic up, uh, uproar. But on the ground in Ukraine, there's only one thing that matters, and it's uh, who has the guns and who's moving the lines. So right now, all that momentum is on the Ukrainian
0: side. E.J. Take- well, I want to pick up right where Josh left off, because I think in some ways the most significant thing that happened is Putin having to apologize for the way his draft is working and trying to shove his own policy off on the other side. He told his security council, uh, I'm going to read it here, all mistakes must be corrected. Uh, and prevented from happening in the future, you need to figure this out. Not Putin. He's saying, I'm not responsible for this. It's the other guys over there. And I think that really shows there is a degree of opposition to his policy now that I don't think he anticipated. I don't think the West uh, anticipated. Uh, The other thing is, I think there's a real contradiction at the core of Putin's policy here, because what he's really counting on, I think, is the West giving up, that the West will have so much pain from economics, high gas prices, energy problems, that they're eventually going to start pressuring Ukraine. At the same time, he's threatening to use nuclear weapons in this war, but nothing will create more solidarity uh, in the West uh, among Ukraine's allies than if Putin went to this extreme length so i think he's stuck there and i think it's very hard to see any end to this anytime soon because putin has had to define victory down he once wanted to take the whole country now he's trying to say these annexations are a huge victory Uh, but Zelensky has been able to define victory up because once uh, putin failed to throw him out of office and now with these battlefield successes uh, Ukraine has good reason to want to keep on fighting. So I
2: don't see this ending anytime soon. Josh, can we talk about the quote unquote partial mobilization um, that Putin instituted and the reaction to it being men, fight men in Russia fleeing the country uh, in droves? What does that, what does that say about yeah. uh, Russia's war effort?
1: Yeah, yeah. And these days in Russia, if you apply for a visa, they give you a MasterCard,
2: you know, as my friend Yakov
1: Shmirnov used to say. <laughs> EJ got it. Listen, if they're going to, if Putin's going to bring back the Soviet Union, I'm going to bring back the jokes. You know, right. they don't have American Express, they have <laughs> Russian Express. Don't
2: leave home. Okay. Don't leave home. No, I got I, I get it. But I mean, so it, it, seriously, though. Go ahead, Josh. Is this thing on? Seriously, though.
1: <laughs> you know, what happened this week <laughs> is that. Putin's seven-month propaganda gambit, which convinced or allowed lots of Russians to convince themselves that this war was going well, that it was just a special military operation that was gonna end soon, that propaganda propaganda gambit is over because when Russian citizens all over the country see their brothers and mother and sisters and fathers and grandfathers dragged off with no training and no weapons and thrown into a meat grinder never to return, well, that's undeniable. At that point, Putin's jig is up. Even the state propagandists cannot sit there with a straight face and toe Putin's line. So the lie is over. And now his his, uh, the, his failure is laid bare. But the problem is that the policy is not changing and that he's essentially telling Russians they can like it or lump it. So they're fleeing in droves. And now that creates a humanitarian crisis for millions of Russians. But to be honest with you, Jonathan, I'm more compassionate toward the Ukrainians, because they're the ones who are fleeing the war. The Russians are just fleeing Putin, and the Ukrainians are the victims, we have to remember, and the Russians are the collateral damage.
2: Right, right. And EJ, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, given everything that Josh just said and the implications of, of this partial mobilization, what does it say about Putin's grip on power uh, in Russia, if, if it does at all?
0: Well, he's still a dictator with enormous power and he still controls all the means of violence and intimidation. So I don't think he's falling anytime soon. But I really took that felt need to apologize for uh, a policy that he put in place, suggests that he is worried to some degree that these protests are maybe even bigger than we uh, fully know Uh, that he has a sense that Russians are fed up with this because they didn't count on uh, the war being so difficult. Um, So I think he's still got a strong grip on power, but I think he's threatened today in a way that he
2: wasn't six months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's switch gears and talk about um, disaster politics here at home. Hurricane Ian As we have seen in the past, politics and natural disasters make for uh, some strange bedfellows. President Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis praised each other this week for their joint response to Hurricane Ian. Here's what Governor DeSantis had to say Tuesday night on Fox. My, my phone lines open when people's lives and their property are at risk like this you know we all need to work together regardless of party lines uh, the biden administration has approved our request for a pre landfall declaration and did that very quickly so so we're thankful for that you know obviously as this the impacts are known uh, you know there's going to be more requests particularly uh, for individual assistance for Floridians that may have been displaced you know and it's my sense that the administration you know wants to help I think they realize that this is a really Significant storm. So, EJ, I'm coming back to you. I mean, that's Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Is this a healthy sign for our democracy that some political differences can be put aside uh, under some circumstances? I mean, who knew that Ron DeSantis was a Biden lover,
0: uh, at least for this uh, limited period of time? I mean, I guess we could say, well, when you have a disaster this big, it finally creates some uh, bipartisanship. And I think it's natural for a governor to do that. Uh, I think from DeSantis's point of view, uh, he has really no other option. Uh, And it's a little embarrassing for DeSantis because, you know, back in uh, 2013, he opposed aid to uh, New York. Uh, in a hurricane and all that is coming back. And suddenly federal aid isn't good for New York, but it is good for Florida, so we're confronting that. Uh, But DeSantis in the long run, if he has presidential ambitions, which he clearly does, knows that uh, whatever antics he pulls uh, to win a Republican primary, if he fails in the management of this awful disaster that's hurting so many people in Florida, um, that's going to hurt him decisively in an election. So he has decided, rightly, I think, that working with Biden is his best option, um, even if that's painful
2: to some Republican primary voters come 2024. Mm-hmm. So, so Josh, I'm going to pick up on on EJ's. You know, you know, if a governor fails in the management uh, line, because we have seen Republican governors, um, trying not to fail in the management. In terms of helping people in their state, but politically they get hammered. Chris Christie got hammered for praising President Biden after Hurricane Sandy and his help with with, um, um, New, Jer- with New Jersey. But then we also saw before that a situation where then Republican Governor of Florida, Charlie Crist, not only praised President Biden but did a partial one of those partial bro hugs, and he was run out of the party. So does does Governor DeSantis, Republican Governor DeSantis, face political peril for just saying those few nice words about President Biden and his administration?
1: Right. No, I think EJ's got this exactly right. He's stuck. He's, he's caught in the horns of the dilemma. He's damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. Uh, and the best thing that the Biden team can do is to uh, fly Joe Biden down there and have him Chase down Ron DeSantis, give him a big hug, and take a lot of pictures. And every single one of those pictures uh, will be come back to haunt Ron DeSantis sooner rather than later. Uh, but in the end, I think we you know uh, it, the, what will be remembered is is what the result of of his handling of it. And it, mm-hmm. to be to be honest, in two and a half years, this is really not going to be uh, the issue that's on people's minds anymore uh, when Ron DeSantis runs for president. What I found really interesting is that Ron DeSantis is uh, political move, you could say, was to put his wife front and center in this crisis. He gave her a huge job to lead the state's efforts to raise money for hurricane relief. And uh, she, according to every profile of Ron DeSantis that's being written or has been written, uh, is his closest advisor and is about to take a major role in his presidential campaign. So this is as much a test for her as it is for him. And Casey DeSantis is a very accomplished TV presenter and you know, is immensely powerful in that world. And, uh, you know, so I think a lot of eyes are on her as much as they are on him.
2: Um, In the little bit of time that we have left, I want to squeeze in uh, a question about the midterms. Uh, EJ, uh, you wrote a column where you you point out that it had been assumed Republicans were going to run on inflation, particularly rising gas prices. Um, Why don't you think those issues are still big winners for Republicans? Well, the
0: simple reason uh, is gas prices are down compared to where they were uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and the Republicans have now, in large numbers, you know, as the Post reported, 50,000 ads in the first three weeks of September have been about crime, and they are pivoting to the crime issue. I argued in the column uh, that Democrats shouldn't just be defensive on crime. They should actually go on offense. Uh, they Uh, Center for American uh, Progress Action Fund did a very interesting study that showed that there are a number of issues related to crime that the Republicans are vulnerable on. One is guns, where support for sane gun laws is widespread and a lot of Republicans don't want to pass them. Um, And the other is on prevention. Voters in large numbers don't just want rhetoric about who's tough or soft on crime. They want to know who's going to prevent this in areas uh, like drug treatment, mental health, lifting up these neighborhoods. And so I think in politics, often people think, well, we don't want to talk about that issue. And sometimes uh, that is the best strategy. Republicans are trying to push aside the abortion rights issue. Um, But in this case, other times it's using the other side's perceived strength against them. And I think there's real opportunity on the crime issue, uh, for progressives to say they're yelling about crime, but they don't want to do the things we need to do to prevent crime.
2: Hmm. Josh, you, uh, I caught that. Josh, I saw you nod, did the eyebrows, and cock your head to the <laughs> side, which means you're not exactly convinced,
1: right? Well, no. I I learned a lot about this from EJ's column, which everyone should check out. And uh, you know, I I I agree with him that you know there is an opportunity for uh, Democrats to turn these classically uh, Republican-focused issues against them, but at the same time, I think what where I might differ with him is that, you know, I believe that these uh, elections are based largely on macro factors, and that you know the ability of ads and parties and pundits to tell people what to care about is extremely limited when it comes time to vote, and you know be- because of historical patterns and because of the overall downturn in the economy and the real pain that. A lot of people are feeling in their lives this is going to be a change election and that bodes poorly for Democrats and very well for Republicans who are very likely to take at least one chamber of the House. And there's not a lot of uh, focus groups or ads that are going to change any of that. now. What will change some of that is when the Republicans have particularly horrible candidates, as they do in my home state of Pennsylvania, like Doug Mastriano and uh, Dr. Oz. And those candidates could certainly lose. But uh, overall, I think that uh, the die are cast on this one. And it's going to be something of a bloodbath for Democrats, especially those centrist Democrats in those purple states, which is of particular interest for me because those are the national security Democrats and they're about to get wiped out.
2: Okay. I certainly um,
0: agree that it, pundits can't tell voters how to vote, but I think this race is closer than it was uh, two months ago, and that's why the argument matters. If this were a blowout, I would agree. It doesn't matter, but it's not a blowout anymore. It's a really competitive election.
2: And you say real saying? fast because we've got less than 90 seconds left, how much will is abortion playing in making um, midterm races closer? Oh, I think abortion played a huge
0: role because uh, suddenly uh, a significant body of voters were mad not at Biden or the Democrats at Congress, but at the United States Supreme Court. Um, and Republicans in the earliest goings after this were playing right into the Democrats' hands by proposing really draconian abortion laws that even very moderate voters said this goes way too far I think you see how powerful abortion is as an issue by the extent to which Republicans are scrubbing their websites of their old positions uh, and trying not to talk about it at all. They just don't see a path for neutralizing Mm -hmm. this in the way, for example, I think Democrats could on crime. And so it is one of the key factors
2: that took an election that might have been a blowout and has made it close. All right. E.J. Dion, Josh Rogan, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Great Good to time. be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our
0: upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.